Today we're going to continue in series on from the book of Colossians. And I'll endeavor to use this lapel mic today. We'll see what kind of static I generate today and all kind of popping. But the series is, I haven't titled it, It's All in Him. And much of that uh, is covered throughout the the epistle of Paul to the church at Colossae. So today I want to jump ahead to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Last week I preached from verses 3 through 8, verses 9 through 14. I had covered um, a little bit ago back in the summer and preached about spiritual maturity and God wanting us to grow, so growing in spiritual maturity and part of an, another series that I did. So I'm going to jump down to verse 15 today, reading in the New Living Translation. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see such as thrones and kingdoms, rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Would you lift your voices right now, just for a moment? Would you thank God for his goodness one more time? I feel his presence here today. Jesus, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your mercy, your grace. Thank you for your presence that we feel in this sanctuary right now. And God, I pray that your presence and power would continue to be at work in us through the remainder of this service. I want to preach for just a little bit on this title, The Preeminent Christ. The Preeminent Christ. Have you ever had a boss that you didn't like? Anybody ever had a boss you didn't like? A few hands here and there. I've had a few of those. And and when you have a boss that you don't like, it makes it difficult to work for them. It makes it difficult to want to go the extra mile. It makes it difficult to want to go out of your way to do extra things or make them happy or extra things to just make their load lighter. But even if you don't like your boss, if you want to keep your job, you do what they say even if you don't like it because you need the job and They typically will have the power to fire you and take your job from you. 
But it's so much better when you have a boss that you like. Anybody ever had a boss that you really liked? That when you, when you have somebody you like, then you want to be there. It's not just because of the job, but because you can be around your boss and you, you want to do things and you go the extra mile and you do little things to make their job easier and you do things that aren't necessarily required of you because you like them and because hopefully they like you. And so if I'm choosing the kind of boss that I would have, it would be one that I would like and one that I would have things in common with. I've been privileged, maybe privilege is not the right word, but in numerous uh, types of ministry I've had uh, employees that would work for me, 35 or 40 depending on the job of, of employees that were under me. And I always tried to get the job done, but always trying to do what's best for the people that are working with me and helping accomplish the task that maybe I am responsible for. It's always better, though, when you're the kind of boss that people like and the kind of boss that people want to be around. Jesus has many titles. He has many roles that we see in the Scripture. And among the roles that he has and among the ways in which he functions are maybe the three most common that people will use. It is Lord, it is King, or it is Savior. That people will talk about the Lord Jesus Christ or the Lordship of Jesus or people will talk about the kingship of Jesus. They will talk about he is the king over all. But I would say more people really talk about him and use the title Savior as it relates to him. And while that's not a bad thing, in fact, it is a good thing. It is because he is the Savior. He is the way in which we get from having a, an eternal destiny in hell to an eternal destiny in heaven. Savior, though, is sometimes used by people where they just want him to get them out of their trouble and get them out of the bad place that they're in, and they're not really looking for him to be Lord or King. They want a Savior, but they don't want Someone who is telling them what to do. They don't want someone who is actually in charge of them. They just want someone that will give them blessings and someone who will take them to heaven. But understand this, it is a package deal. That he is not looking just to be our Savior, but he is also looking to be our Lord and he is looking to be our King. Salvation comes with a call and a demand to surrender our lives to Jesus. When Jesus invites us into his kingdom, it is a kingdom. And where there is a kingdom, there is a king. And where there is a king, there is the reign of that king. And so when he invites us to come to him for salvation and to enter into his kingdom, it is a call not just to salvation, but that call is to surrender our lives to the king. The Jews were looking for a Messiah. From their earliest understanding of Genesis chapter 3, their earliest understanding of what God was intending to do when, when Adam and Eve sinned and they were kicked out of the garden, from their earliest understanding of the promise that God gave that the serpent would bruise the seed 
of Adam and Eve's heel, but that the seed of Adam and Eve would crush the head of the serpent. They understood that there was coming a Messiah. They understood that there was coming someone who would deliver them. But most of the time, what they were looking for was someone to come and deliver them from their oppression, to deliver them from bondage that they themselves had gotten themselves into. But what they did not expect was the Lord of glory. They did not expect to God, for God to come as a man into their midst. That was not their expectation. They're looking for a human only who would deliver them, a human that God would raise up on the throne of David to be a warrior that would lead them in battle and would lead them to victory. But what they got was the Lord of glory coming in the form of a man, and he, he was there not just to, to deliver them from their immediate oppression, but he was there to deliver them from sin and from the kingdom of darkness and take them into the kingdom of light. But with that came a call for him to be king. C.S. Lewis renowned Christian author of the 20th century. Some of you may know him from the Chronicles of Narnia. But he penned a number of theological works and made a number of theological arguments. Some would say that Jesus is a good man. Some would say that Jesus is a good person. But many of those same people, while they would say he's a good man or he's a good person or maybe he's a prophet, many would stop short of saying that he is indeed the Lord of glory. And so while they would say that Jesus is good and they would put out his accolades and put forth things about him, they would deny that he is the Lord of glory or that he is God revealed in human form. The problem is that he often made claims to deity. I forgive your sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they would ask. And he said, well, just so you know that I really had the power to do that, let me heal. Or before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was. But using that Greek phrase from the translation of Exodus chapter 3 at Moses at the burning bush when Moses would say, who should I say has sent me? And he would reply in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek in, the, in around 250 B.C. with that phrase, ego emi, which means I am. Not used by any other Jews because of its connotation of deity and its on, connotation of saying that this is divine, but Jesus would say I am. Using that same language, claiming to be the Lord of the universe. And so C.S. Lewis created a few questions for people who would say that Jesus is good but he is not God he would, and it goes like this if Jesus claimed to be God which he did and he knows that he is not God he's a liar and who would say a liar is a good man or a good teacher If Jesus claimed to be God, and he did, and he really wasn't 
He just thought he was. Well, that would make him a lunatic. He's crazy. Oh, but he's a really good guy. (laughs) Nobody would say he's a good teacher or he's a good person if he's having delusions of grandeur and he says he's God and he's really not, but he thinks he is. So C.S. Lewis would say that the only other option is that he claims to be God and he really is God, which makes him Lord. That he is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords, he is God revealed in human flesh, and it is that position that the Bible speaks of. With that backdrop for just a few minutes, and I'm halfway through my allotted time, I want to elaborate a little bit on the preeminent Christ. First, I want to dwell on this, that Christ is preeminent in his essence. That the very nature of who he is and the very person that he is makes him preeminent. Paul would make various arguments here or various claims, but he starts off with this, that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That when you see Jesus, you are seeing a visible representation of who God is. Depending on the version of the Bible you use, it will have Christ there or not. But it goes back to verse 13 where he's talking about the incarnation. And I don't want to be overly teachy today. or But the incarnation is that union of human and divine that takes place only in Jesus Christ. It is when God takes on the form of a man. And so verses 15 through 23 that we read are looking at the incarnation. And by that I mean it is looking at the man who walked around on the earth for some 33 years, the one who went to the cross, the one who died on the cross. It's talking about that person that the Apostle John would say, we have touched, we have handled the word of life. That we were with him, we saw him, we spoke with him, we touched him. That is the one who is the image of, the visible image of the invisible God. God is spirit. You can't see him, but Jesus comes in the form of a man, and then when you look at him, he would say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That you've seen God in human flesh. I am something different that that you were expecting. I'm not just a man, but I am God in humanity. Paul would say in writing to Timothy, There is no controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. Speaking of that same incarnation of how God can be a man, be both God and man at the same time, it doesn't compute. As some would say, he's 100% God, 100% man. Well, that's 200%. How do you get that? Paul would say, there's no controversy about it. It's a great mystery. That God was manifest. In the flesh, or revealed in flesh, he was seen of angels. The angels saw this visible of the invisible God. We saw this visible of the invisible God. He was preached on in the world. He was received up in the glory. It's speaking of the incarnation or of the Christ. and He is the visible image of the invisible God. That makes him preeminent. That puts him in a different category. That puts him first. The word image there is the Greek word icon, which we get our word icon. 
which means this exact replica of what God is. That when we see him, the character, the nature of who he is and what he does, it is the idea that he is an exact replica of the very nature of God. An exact replica of the God of the universe who transcends all time, who transcends space. That Jesus is that visible of the invisible God. The firstborn, look at your neighbor, say, prototokos. Oh, really, you can do it, prototokos. It's easier to say it if you can see it on the screen. It's where we get our word prototype. But it's the Greek word, and it's used of Jesus. He is the first one. But he is unlike any other one. It's only used of him. He is the prototype. He is the firstborn of all creation. So before any other creation, God looking ahead in time as we would see it, basing everything that he's doing on the man Christ Jesus who would come in the future. Which is why the Bible can say of Jesus, he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth or the world. He wasn't slain until 2,000 years ago. He wasn't crucified until 2,000 years ago. But God knew it was coming. It was God's plan of redemption. When he created everything, he sees it all at once. And he knows that man is going to sin. He knows they're going to fall. He knows that he's going to need to redeem them. And he knows that the only way to redeem them is the shedding of blood. But not just any blood. It has to be sinless, perfect blood. And so he knows that the man, Christ Jesus, is coming. That he is coming in the form of man. And he will die on the cross. And so the lamb is slain from the foundation of the world before any of it. He's looking ahead to what would be. And so Jesus is that firstborn. Before all of creation, God has it all laid out. He is not a God who makes up things on the fly. He's not a God that comes to a situation and says, well, I don't, well, let me think about this for a little bit and decide what I'm going to do. No, he is a God that knows the end from the beginning. And so he looks at it all and faces everything on what he's going to do. Aren't you glad we serve a God who's not learning on the job? Because if he's learning on the job, we get to a difficult thing in our life. He's like, bet you've never seen that before. What are you going to do now? <laughs> there is no God going, well, let me think about it for a little bit. Let me try to figure it out. I didn't see Adam and Eve sinning in the garden. What are we going to do? <laughs> I just expected them to always listen. He's not figuring it out. As he goes, he's not figuring it out on the fly. But Jesus, the Christ, the incarnation, the God-man, he is the firstborn. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. The Greek actually there is that says in him. He created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. And he even created all the things we can't see, dominions and powers and authorities and kingdoms, speaking of, of the angelic and the demonic realm where, where people, these angels, where they're fallen or serving him still, they're in power 
And he says, I created all of them in him and through him. Everything emanates out from him. He is preeminent in his place that he existed before anything else, verse 17 says, and he holds all creation together. Before there was any other creation, there was the understanding of the Christ. The writer of Hebrews, speaking of this holding things together, this sustaining of things, but say it this way, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation or the icon of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he upholds all things by the word of his power. The God who spoke everything into existence in Genesis, still upholding everything by his word. That nothing can happen until he says it can happen. That you couldn't destroy this planet even if you wanted to because he's upholding everything by the word of his power. Man can't do anything to destroy this no matter how many gas-powered vehicles you drive, you can't destroy it. He upholds it all. He is the head of the church. He is preeminent over death. He is preeminent over all. He is preeminent as the God-man. But secondly, and I hurry, because I should be in my conclusion, but he is preeminent in his salvation. After speaking of the reconciliation that Jesus has done, in verse 20, Paul would say it this way about the people who are far off. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ and his physical body. As a result, you have been brought into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless, and stand before him without a single fault. Not because we're perfect, but because he's perfect. Not because we're good, but because he's good. Not because we're sinless in the way in which we live our life, but because he is sinless. And he has taken his goodness, and he has taken his sinlessness, and he has put it on us, and he has taken away our sin. And he would close this section, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. Understand that Jesus is preeminent when it comes to your salvation. That there is no other way to be saved apart from Jesus Christ. We were far off and we were enemies of God. We were evil in our thoughts and actions. But in spite of all of that, through his death on the cross, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us so that you and I could live and we could walk in newness of life. He is preeminent in his salvation. Understand that there is only one means of salvation. There is only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. 
If there were other ways, then Jesus wouldn't be preeminent. If there were other ways, we wouldn't need to follow him. If there were other ways, we wouldn't need to turn to him. If there were other ways, we could say, well, I don't, I don't want you to be Lord and King, so I, I'm going to go get saved this other way. But there is only one way. And Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, the life. He would say, I am the door of the sheepfold, and no one comes in except through me. He would say, no one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way of salvation. So my call today for you is this. that Because he is preeminent in everything, we must submit wholly and completely to him. We must give our all to him. My 25 minutes have ended. But one Old Testament story. Jephthah, who would become a judge of Israel. A judge is someone that God would use to deliver his people out of oppression or bondage of their enemies. Jephthah was an outcast. His brother's Because he had a different mother, undesirable, we don't want to be around him, but Jephthah had something going in his favor, and that was that he was a great warrior. So when his brothers and his family, they couldn't figure out how to shake off the enemy that was oppressing them, they went to Jephthah. said, Jephthah, we need your help. Help us. Deliver us from our enemies. And Jephthah asked this question. If I do that, will I be Lord? You've rejected me. You've pushed me aside. Now you need my help. But he said, if I help you, am I going to be the one in charge? And the question that God would ask us if He's Savior, will He be Lord? If He delivers us from our sin and He delivers us from our enslavement and bondage to sin, if He takes us out of hell and He takes us to heaven, He's not looking to just be Savior. He's not looking to just be Deliverer. But He is looking to be Lord. Would you stand together? So my question to you is, do you want Jesus to be Lord of your life? Do you want Jesus to be King in your life? He loves us with a great love. He has given all for us, but He comes with a decision to follow Him 
as Lord and King. And I would tell you that it is not a one-time event where we say, all right, Lord, you're, you're King, and there's no other battles the rest of our lives. But it is an ongoing process of daily seeking to walk with Him, and seeking to serve Him, and seeking to follow Him, seeking to make Him Lord of your life every day. When we think of what He's done on the cross, when we think of our eternity apart from Him, it should make us want to serve Him more. Would you lift your hands right now where you're standing? Would you just talk to the Lord for a moment? Jesus, we love you.